Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that you are here with us. And we thank you, God, for everything you've given us in your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us insight into your Word, who who intercedes for us, who comforts us, who reminds us who we are. And Father, today we pray that you would speak to us through your Word, that you would draw us into your presence today, that you would strengthen our hearts and strengthen our faith, that we might be transformed and become more like Jesus. We give you glory today, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated and the kids can be dismissed to CP Kids. My second year of college, I went down to a small Christian university in the Chicago area, and it was a really memorable experience. It was the only year of all the years I went to college where I stayed in a dorm, and uh, I, after a little while, I, I got connected to a group of guys. There were five of us in all. There was my roommate, Raphael, and there was Mike, Brad, and then finally, Jeremy. And the five of us became a very close group of friends. And there was something unique about us. I mean, we weren't anything extraordinary, but we were definitely different. We stood out on this small Christian campus. We, we looked different. We talked different than everyone else. We probably smelled different. We, uh, we listened to different kind of music. We, we valued different things than most of the people on this campus. And... Um, we came to call ourselves the circle. I don't know who came up with that name or why or what was significant about that, that name, but the circle is what we came to, to see ourselves as, a, a circle of friends. And even though there were other people on campus who kind of, you know, we attracted a sort of a, a little bit of a following, but just the five of us made up the circle and no one really ever was able to penetrate that circle. And, and the way we looked at it was the five of us, we're the core, you know, we're the circle, no one gets in, no, no one gets out, you know, we're, we're in this for life, we're like this sort of band of brothers, you know, I was reminded of that as John shared about the men's retreat, that's kind of how we saw ourselves, we're, we're in this for the long haul, we're, <clears throat> we're, we're all in. Well, um, as you can imagine, that didn't last very long, and by the end of second semester, the university had actually sent three of us a letter, basically begging us not to come back. <clears throat> And so that was the beginning of the end of the circle. Only one of us stayed, my roommate Raphael, and, and finished his degree there at that, at that uh, university. And within two years, the rest of us had lost contact. We were in different parts of the country, sort of starting something new in life, going our own way. For myself, as I've mentioned to you before, uh, a couple years, after those two years, uh, I had found Jesus Christ, or I should say he found me. And I began a relationship with Jesus. And when I started this relationship with Jesus, one of the first things I wanted to do was reach out to the circle. I wanted those guys to know Jesus too. So I began writing letters to, to my friends, to Brad, to Mike, and to Raphael, uh, expressing my newfound faith in Christ and what Jesus was doing in my life. By the way, I didn't write a letter to Jeremy because I never really liked Jeremy that much. 
uh, and not only that, but but Jeremy would always he he spent a lot of time just making fun of Christians and Christianity and talking about how ridiculous it was and illogical and all those things. And I just felt like he's not going to be interested. He's always been kind of an arrogant jerk. I'm not even going to write to Jeremy. I, I the only reason I ever I, you know really spend time with Jeremy's because he was part of the circle and so was I. But he was the one part of the circle I didn't really care for. I just kind of put up with him. Well, after I had written all these letters to my friends, none of them responded to me or showed any interest in following Jesus. But then one day, a couple months later, I get a phone call from Jeremy. And Jeremy says, Dave, I heard about this change in your life. I'm just wondering, how did you do that? How did you change from who you were to, you know, the, this person you are now? I want to know how that happened. And so I began to talk to Jeremy about Jesus. And he was listening. And he was very interested. And I could tell he was ready to experience something new in his life too. He needed the hope that I had. He wanted what I had. It was clear to me. And so I invited Jeremy to come up and spend a weekend with me in Milwaukee. I was living in Milwaukee with a roommate. And he was living in Chicago. And he agreed to come up. And <coughs> After thinking about this, we hung up the phone. After thinking about this, I realized, I don't think I can do this alone. Jeremy's a lot smarter than me. He probably has questions that I don't know the answer to. I was pretty new in my relationship with Jesus. Even though I had, you know, grown up in the church, there was a lot I didn't know and a lot that I felt inadequate for. And so I asked my roommate, who'd been a Christian about six months longer, if he would join me, because surely he was a lot more mature than I was. And we realized after talking together that even the two of us together wasn't enough. And so we asked his brother, my roommate's older brother, Aaron, who was a pastor, if he would be there with us when Jeremy came. And he, he agreed to come. And Jeremy came that weekend. And it was one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had. Jeremy came up and sure enough, he was, he had, he had questions, he had doubts, he had, he had all kinds of, uh, you know, apprehensions about following Jesus. But even with all of his intellectual hang-ups with Christianity, None of it mattered. All of that sort of faded to the background because what he needed more than anything was hope. His his intellectual problems with Christianity didn't matter. He just needed Jesus. And so the three of us prayed together with Jeremy all night. And and I'm telling you, there haven't been that many times in my life where I could feel the power of the Holy Spirit in a room, but that was one of them that night. And Jeremy put his faith in Jesus Christ that night. While the three of us prayed for him, it changed his life. And I learned something that night that I want to share with you this morning. And that is that being a messenger is not a solo mission. It's not a solo mission. It's not something we're, we're called and sent to do all by ourselves. And I realized that that night. I, I needed a partner that night to help me. I mean, Jeremy, I was the one who Jeremy needed. I was his first touch. I was the only person he knew that knew anything or that had any kind of relationship with Jesus. So I got the phone call and I was able to tell him, this is the only way that my life changes, all, all because of Jesus. And that's all it took for him to, to take the next step. But when he was ready to put his faith in Christ, there were people there to partner with me. People who were at that time part of my church, my roommate and his older brother who was my pastor. And it was an amazing experience. And think about this, when, the, when Jesus called the first few disciples who were fishermen, he said, follow me, and I'm going to make you become fishers of men. One thing we tend to forget is that fish, people who fish for a living, they don't do it by themselves. None of those disciples were going out on a boat every day by themselves. They were going in groups of two or more, because that's how you had to do it. 
And most of you, those of you, unless you're super hardcore fishermen, most of you would rather fish with other people, right? It's just something we like to do in groups. And when Jesus called them to become fishers of people and to catch people, that didn't change. His intention all along was that they would continue going out in groups as partners in the fishing process, being messengers together. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started this series called I Am a Messenger, and, and the first thing we said is that we are all messengers. Every disciple that Jesus called was made into a messenger of the gospel. Being a messenger is not some special gift or skill reserved for the few followers who are really good at it. I'm not very good at it. I want to share, give you an example of that later. But every follower is a messenger, without exception. And then last week, we considered this idea, that God's message opens the door to God's joy. So that very early on in this, in this new movement that Jesus started, he took his first five followers to a party, a wedding, and Jesus became the life of the party. And not only that, but it was at that party where Jesus performed his first miracle and defined what this new movement was going to be all about. And gospel movement, this is what it's all about. Gospel movement is about bringing people out from under the misery of sin and into the joy of God's presence. That's what being a messenger is all about. That's what we're going after. And now today, I want to introduce a new idea to you. It's more good news. And that is that being a messenger is not a solo mission. If you have a Bible with you today, please open it or turn it on and go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And as you're turning there, I want to describe to you what is going on before this interaction that we're going to read about. What began with five disciples has since grown to 12. There's now a circle of 12 men who've decided to follow Jesus and pledge their allegiance to Jesus. They've been following him and listening to him and learning from him in everyday life. They travel together, they eat together, they sleep together, they work together, they do ministry together. They do everything together, this group of guys. And as close of a group as they are, there came a time when Jesus had to sort of stop and take an inventory of where, this, where these guys were at and where this whole thing was going. You know, think about it this way. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone where there was trust and affection, maybe even love, but you got to a place where you just had to ask a hard question to find out, you know, what the heart of this person was, what their true intentions were that you were on this journey with? Maybe there was a time with your spouse, for those of you who are married, before you got married, when you came to a crossroads and you just had to know whether or not this person was really committed to you or if they really knew you and how committed you were to them or there came a time where you had to tell them, you really, you, you wanted to tell them, I love you. And that was like a huge step in the journey with them. And I, I got to say, that's a really hard place to be. It's not easy to ask the question, do you love me? Or where's this relationship going? Or are you thinking about our future? I do realize that it's usually men who like to talk about that stuff and take things to the next level and just get all that out into the open, right? It's usually the men. I'm not serious. You know that, right? And that's, but that's kind of where Jesus is with his disciples at this point. Jesus is giving them a test. He's about to give them a test to find out what they really know And how committed they are to the relationship. And he finds out what he needs to by asking one simple question. We're going to look at that 
In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 18, you can follow along with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? That's Jesus. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now here's the question. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? This, this is the question of all questions. Okay, whatever they say in response to this question is going to change the course of their relationship and change the course of history. It's almost like Jesus is saying, <clears throat> here I am, a homeless, poor carpenter from Galilee, a small town with a bad reputation, and I've emerged from humble beginnings and quite a bit of resistance to become a well-known teacher and rabbi Who do you see? Who am I really? Is there more to me than what the public sees? That's what he's asking. See, it doesn't really matter what everyone else is saying about Jesus. Jesus makes it personal. He wants to know from their mouths what they see in him and what they believe about him. And I think there might have been a pause and maybe an awkward silence at this point as the disciples let this sink in. You know, do they go with the crowd's opinion of Jesus? Or have they discovered something more? And then, one of the first five disciples, one of the fishermen, right, who Jesus called, one of the first five, has a revelation. He has a revelation. He didn't make this discovery on his own. No one who had been, no one who had been following or listening to Jesus could have understood what this disciple is about to say, unless God himself revealed the truth to him about Jesus. And so he breaks the silence. He breaks the silence. Let's read on. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now what Simon Peter is saying is that this Homeless, penniless carpenter from Galilee is the one true anointed king over men. Appointed by God to rule over the universe for all eternity. He's saying, you, Jesus of Nazareth, are the true king of kings. You are the anointed one of God. You are the Messiah. You are the one the prophets and the psalmists have written about for hundreds and hundreds of years. The one we've been waiting for. There are no human categories that you fit into. There's no human explanation for where you came from or where you are going. The only way to understand you, Jesus, is that you have come from God. You are not a mere human being. You are the one and only Son of God. And I wish we could see the look on the other disciples' faces when those words came out of Peter. Were they surprised? Did they all nod in agreement? Did their eyes get big? And then turn to Jesus. What would Jesus say in response to such a radical statement? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Jesus, 
does something that none of the disciples expected. He takes Peter's words and he begins to start talking about this new movement that hasn't started yet. It's going to take the world. This movement's going to take the world and even hell by storm. It hasn't started yet. There wasn't a name for it yet. In fact, Jesus uses a common word, which we have in the Greek word. It's ekklesia. That's the word that's translated church. But ekklesia was a common word, which people of that day used just to describe an assembly of people gathered to discuss political or social affairs, almost like a town hall gathering. That's what assembly, that's what the word church was used to describe back then. But Jesus uses that word church to talk about this new movement that he's going to die for. Jesus is going to die so that this new movement can start. And this revelation given to Peter is so huge and so significant that Jesus decides to mark this turning point by giving, by giving Simon a new name. And so Jesus gives Simon this name that wasn't even a name back then. He uses the word Petros, which means stone, like stone that you can hold in your hand. He says, now you are stone. You are stone. And the disciples are probably like, what, what, what's stone? What is that? What is that, some new nickname or something? Jesus, wouldn't the rock sound better or something like that? What is stone? What is that supposed to mean? But Jesus says, no, you are stone. From now on, you are stone, which we call Peter. And on this rock, he uses a play on words here, on this big boulder-like rock, I am going to build my church. Now, as the disciples are listening to Jesus, they probably would have been reminded of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he, he sort of is teaching the law to Jews as a Jewish rabbi, He's teaching the law in a new way, with a new understanding, in a way that he's going to fulfill with a new covenant in his blood. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes at the end, he comes to the end of the whole Sermon on the Mount, and he concludes the Sermon on the Mount by talking about two kinds of people. He basically said there's two kinds of people in the world. The first kind of person is a fool because they don't listen to and obey my words what Jesus said. That person builds their house or their life on the sand. He uses this metaphor of building your house on a sand, a shallow, shaky foundation. And when the storms of life come, the house falls hard and their whole life unravels. The second person, the second kind of person is wise because they build their house or their life on the rock. And when the storms of life come, the house stands. They're able to stand firm no matter what is going on around them. So Jesus here in Matthew 16 takes that analogy and sort of takes it to a whole new level. He says he's going to build his house on a rock. And scholars and theologians have been debating for centuries on what this rock is. When he says on this rock. Is it Peter? Is it his confession that Jesus is the son of the living God? Is it Jesus himself? Who's the rock? Rather than try to resolve that that age-old debate this morning, the the point is this. Jesus is not going to build an actual temple or city. He's going to build a community. 
He's building a community of people who've been awakened to God through hearing a message. And starting with Peter's confession of Jesus as the one true representative of God, the one rescuer who's going to make everything right, who's going to find sinners and take people who've been running from God their whole lives and turn them around and making them into a whole new creation. Jesus is going to build his church, his assembly, his family, and nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him. No, no other movement, no enemy, no world power, no ideology, no nation, no king, no wave of persecution, not even the power and forces of hell will be able to stop Jesus Christ from building his church or his family, his community. He's going to build it. And he's going to keep building it until he returns to redeem us. And that reality brings us to our big idea today. The one simple thing I want you to remember from today's message. Being a messenger is not a solo mission. It's not a solo mission. When Jesus left the disciples on earth to return to his Father in heaven, the disciples did not separate and scatter. They did not disperse to go on solo missions. They stayed together. They began telling people the good news about Jesus. They, were, they went in groups of two or three and sometimes more to find people who were far from God and, and tell them this good news about what God had done in, in the person of Jesus Christ. When we read about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which is the day that Peter, again, he preaches the gospel and the church is born. We read at the end of that chap- chapter that all the people, which, which, which amounted to thousands, all the people who'd come to faith in Christ and were baptized were actually doing life together, eating together, learning together, praying together, meeting together often, worshiping together, sharing the things they had. And it says at the end of that passage that the communities around them thought very highly of them and the Lord Jesus was adding to their number daily, building his church. How did that happen? There's only one way. The people were talking about Jesus in everyday circles. At home, at work, in their neighborhoods, with family members. People were asking them, what's happened to you? Just like my friend Jeremy did. What's happened to you? What's this new thing that you're a part of? And they would say, come and see. I'll show you. And they would invite neighbors, family members, co-workers. They would invite people who were far from God into the assembly. We know that this happened. There's a lot of examples of it in the New Testament. And people would see the church functioning the way it's supposed to. They would hear the gospel. And the Holy Spirit would come, fill them, transform them. They'd become followers of Jesus. Because they, they, they went. Someone said, come and see. And they went and they were changed for the rest of their lives. That's how Jesus Christ builds his church through ordinary people spreading the message of the gospel or just simply inviting people into a gospel community. When Jesus began calling his first followers, they started inviting the people close to them to see what was happening, to see God's activity in the world. <clears throat> We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. In John chapter 1, we get all kinds of examples. In John chapter 1, a couple guys start following Jesus. They're fishermen. We read about them couple weeks ago and jesus says to them what do you want they said teacher where are you staying jesus said come and see that's all he said come and see 
Andrew was one of those two guys. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, and he said to his brother, come and see. And he brought Simon to Jesus. The next day, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip then found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. I'll show you. Not long after that, Jesus met a Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. She'd been married five times, was living with some guy. Jesus engaged her in a conversation that had some awkward moments, but Jesus pressed through the awkward moments to reveal his true identity to her. When she realized who Jesus was, she dropped everything. She went back to her hometown and began telling people, come and see. Come and see this man. Now this is really important. When Jesus changed a person's life, they always went and told other people about it. And the vast majority of the time, all they said was, come and see. I'll show you. You, wouldn't, you don't believe me? Come and see for yourself. Now, now, what does that mean for us today? Because Jesus isn't here. He's not here physically. We can't introduce people to Jesus in the flesh. Someday he will be here. He'll be back in the flesh. So where is Jesus now? He's here. Jesus Christ is in his church. We are the body of Christ. There is no more visible, tangible, powerful expression of the person of Jesus Christ than in local churches. Especially when the church is being the church. Loving each other, caring for each other, telling the truth to each other. I mean, we are supposed to be the most powerful and persuasive environment in the world when we're being who we're supposed to be. God uses his people as the hands and feet of Jesus today and the mouth of Jesus today. We are his power. We are his love. We are Jesus' compassion. We are his mercy. We are his grace. We are his truth. We are his wisdom. We are his church. And Jesus will continue building his church until he comes back. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can slow him down. This movement called the church is overpowering the gates of hell and rescuing people all over the world. Every day, Jesus Christ is adding to his church. Through the church. So this week's challenge is very simple. This week's challenge I'm calling, come and see. That's your challenge this week. Now before I get specific, you know, most of you are here because Crosspoint is your church family. You are Crosspoint. It's not a building. It's not about where we meet. It's the people. It's always been that way. It always will be. This is who we, this is who Crosspoint is. It's you. It's me. We are Crosspoint Church. We are the body of Christ here. And we are your partners in catching people for Jesus Christ. I want you to know that. We are 
your partner in sharing the good news. We want you to be able to invite your friends here and to know that they will see the love of Christ when they're with us. They will see people who love God. They will feel the presence of God. They will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll be confronted with reality. Their kids will be well cared for, have a good time, and they too will hear about Jesus. So when you go to a friend or neighbor or coworker or family member and you say, come and see, you say, come to my church, come to this event, what we're... What we're telling them is, come and see Jesus. Come and hear this message that has the power to change your life. They don't even have to come to church to see Jesus in us. You can invite them to a party. I mean, remember, that's when, that's, when Jesus' disciples first believed in him, it wasn't at church. It was at a wedding. That's when they first believed in him. It could be a birthday party, a play date. It could be a chili cook-off, which is coming up soon. A barbecue, a block party, time out. It could be a Packer party. It could be a Halloween party. Your house could be the place where a neighbor or friend sees Jesus on display and hears the message. My wife and I often will invite our neighbors to our house when we have Christians at our house. Some of you might think that's crazy. Why would I want those two worlds to collide? Because that's how people get saved. That's how people hear the message. That's how people see Jesus. It's wherever the church is gathered. And a couple of chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus himself said, he gave a principle to his disciples. He said, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. And for many people in our cities today, their first touch with the body of Christ will not be in the church building. It's gonna, it could be at your house. It could be at a park. It could be in your small group. It could be any number of places. So week one, I challenged you to, I challenged you to write a letter to the person who was instrumental in bringing you to Jesus Christ, to faith in Jesus. Last week, I challenged you to make a list of five people who you know that don't have the joy of Jesus yet and to start praying for them. And this week I'm challenging you to invite at least two of those people to be with us. Come and see. You can invite them to the chili cook-off, which is coming up on Saturday, October 25th, a month from now. It's one of the most fun things we do as a church every year. And it's a great way for someone to be introduced to the body of Christ. You know, we're not... We're not, I'm not going to be preaching that night, as far as I know, right? I, I, we're not going to be worshiping together by singing, mostly by eating. <laughs> but we're going to be together. And anytime we're together, we are the body of Christ. You know that, right? Anytime we're together for a party, we're, the, we're together because we, we love being together. We love each other. We're there to, to, to serve each other, to listen to each other, to comfort each other, to laugh together, to cry together. We meet each other wherever we're at because we're the body of Christ. And when you invite your unbelieving friends into that, they're seeing Jesus. They're seeing Jesus. And you know what? Some of you don't like, I'm going to offer you a couple statistics. And some of you will appreciate this and others of you will write it off and that's okay. But the statistics tell us that in America... One out of every four people that you invite to church will come eventually. They'll come. You may have to invite them several times, but they'll come. 
And we're also told, by, based on the research, that the average person in the United States needs to hear an invitation to either follow Jesus or to come to church 7.6 times before they'll accept that invitation. I don't know exactly how they broke that all down, but that's what they say. And so you may need to invite someone a bunch of times before they come. But the challenge is, invite two people. We're calling it you plus two. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. You plus two. We want you to invite two people to come to the chili cook-off, to come to church, to come to the grand opening later this year at our new location, whatever it is, before the end of the year so that they can come and see what Jesus Christ is all about. And I want you to know, some of you feel intimidated by this. You're, this is, you're saying, this is not me. I'm terrible at this. It just doesn't fit my personality. I'm not very good at it either. Okay, on Friday night, I, I was at the, at the building uh, working with, with Dave. And um, all of a sudden, there was a knock on the door, on the front door of the church. So I went outside, and there was this, uh, this girl on a bike it was like 8.30 at night, and she's out there riding her bike. And the first thing I thought was, who lets their 10-year-old girl ride right around here at 8.30 at night? And uh, apparently people do. Well, I started a conversation with her. She's like, hey, what are you guys doing in there? Or she said, what are you building? And I said, oh, we're building a church. And she said, what kind of church? And I said, a non-denominational church. I mean, is that the dumbest thing I could have possibly said? She's probably never heard that word in her life. And then immediately I realized what a silly thing that was to say. And I wasn't prepared for this conversation, okay? This is how bad I am at this. And I said, and, and then I realized, like, oh, I got I to gotta save myself here. I said, it's, we, uh, we, we teach the Bible and we talk about Jesus and there's lots of kids here. And she's like, oh, you mean like old stuff? I said, no, not old. It's new. It never gets old. It's new. She's like, sounds boring. And she took off. That was it. Listen, total failure. Okay, Pastor Dave failed talking to someone about our church. And I'm sure I will fail again, you know. And then I thought for about 15 minutes, all the things I could have said, I could have talked to her about Awana and CP Kids and all the cool things they do, Crazy Hat Night and all this kind of stuff and all the great people she would meet that would, you know, she could start a friendship with, and none of that was there when I needed it. You know how that goes? But, oh, if only Melissa was here, she could have talked to her, my wife, or somebody, somebody who knows what they're talking about. Listen, you're not always going to be prepared, but God's going to give you opportunities. And here's what I think. There's no accidents when it comes to God. God brought that little girl to our front door to talk to me on Friday night. Which means she lives in the vicinity of our church. Which means that she's going to get a flyer or a door hanger or something in the next couple months about our church. And I believe that God's going to bring her back. Even if she thinks it's boring. That she's going to find her way back to our church or another church. Because God loves her. And maybe it takes 7.6 invitations before she comes or her family. But I don't have to do this by myself. And neither do you. We are partners together. We are the body of Christ. I mean, nobody can stop this. Nobody can stop Jesus from building his church. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise today. We thank you that you are building your church, that you 
are finding people all over the world and you are calling them into relationship with you, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn to you for forgiveness and new life so that they can have peace and joy in the presence of God. God, we know that you are good. We know that you are merciful and loving and that your heart's desire is that everyone come to repentance and faith in Jesus. And so we ask that you would fill us with with courage today. And this week, as we think about and pray about the people you've put on our hearts, the people who you've put in our lives who need your joy, who need your salvation. Someday, Lord, maybe you'll bring them to a place of desperation and they will turn to us because they know that we have a relationship with you. And I pray that you would make us ready, God. I pray that you would give us a longing to see more people be added to your church. I pray that you would give us enthusiasm and passion for those people who are lost without you. Even if we think they're jerks, even if we think there's no way they would ever listen, that there's nobody outside of your reach, God. And that you want to use us as messengers to bring the hope of the gospel to people everywhere. God, make us faithful messengers. Remind us today that we are just messengers and you are the one who builds your church. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.